This is Tasting Together. Toronto's News, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Good evening, denizens of Toronto. It's Tasting Together, and I'm Maroki Tong, joined by Andre Pru, as always, to bring you all the tasty goods and make you hungry for dinner, <laughs> so that when we sign off at 6 p.m., you're going to immediately want to go to your favorite place and nosh all the things. I love the idea of being ready to rock to head to a restaurant the moment you snap off the radio or get to your destination, but I need to address the word denizens. We don't get to say that enough <laughs> in our day-to-day life, do we? I think maybe it's because I am um, in my day job working on a lot of storytelling elements and like a lot of it's like lore based and medieval and fantasy. So we're using all the fanciful terms and uh, it's expanding my vocabulary. I love it. I love it so much. Um, yeah, I guess maybe we can we can peel the onion a little bit. You're a nerd. I am a giant nerd. Absolutely, I'm a giant nerd. I mean, can't you tell, Andre, we're like food and drink nerds. It clearly extends to other areas of our lives as well. Definitely does. Uh, you know, do you want to give a quick shout out to what you're doing on your on your civilian life before we get to Summerlicious? Sure. In my civilian life or Monday life for all you Terry Pratchett fans out there, um, I work for a company called The Story Engine, and it's a tabletop game that uses cards to help writers end writer's block. And we just launched our newest crowdfunder campaign on a platform called Backerkit, backerkit.com. And it's a crowdfunder campaign for called the Lore Masters deck, which actually is helping people flesh out the lore of their world. So like, if you're building, you know, store and you want a rich interconnected lore, if you want to build out the world for your Dungeons and Dragons campaign, the Lore Masters deck is for you. So we're we're pretty awesome. You know what? I did a wine pairing with like a weird tentacled crocodile there we go. an alligator creature for yeah. a thing recently. So there's my little food and drink tie. Um, if you're looking at building out rich interconnected lore, of which food and drink does play a part in that, uh, you can check out Lore Masters deck on backerkit.com. And that's what I do in my civilian life. You know, I love how you can pair wine and food with just about anything if you're willing to push your imagination a little bit. So, uh, you know, I'm proud of you for what you've done with that. But moving on, that. moving on here, it's <laughs> Summerlicious. I know when Winterlicious yes. came around, I think we were, uh, I think me personally, I was a little bit more, um, let's say sour, critical. sour on it. Yeah, critical <laughs> on it. But I, I mean, I'm actually really excited for Summerlicious. I know you and I have mentioned it before. A lot of restaurants are talking about how their books are a little bit empty. Um, I think there's certain restaurants that are feeling a bit of the pinch. So now is the time where if you've got a few dollars, and I know a lot of us are feeling a bit of the pinch, grab your dollars, head to your local restaurant, support them, keep the doors open, keep the lights on and help them recover from the pandemic. I know that it's a word we're sick of hearing on the show, but um, I scoured the list of what is on the Summerlicious list. There are 194 restaurants taking part this year. And, and I feel uh, like new ones too. Like I, I looked at that list as well, and I actually think there's ones on there that don't normally participate. I For anyone who's like, I'm a Summerlicious nerd. That's definitely one thing I'm super nerdy about, and I always scour the list. Um, every single time Summerlicious and Winterlicious comes around. And there's usually some repeat contenders who like yes. participating quite often, but I'm pretty sure I've seen a few new ones this time too, Andre. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, one that uh, I, I picked, I, I narrowed my list down to three. Um, and one that I, I actually haven't had a chance to visit yet because I'm a big fan of their downtown location is Pai. P-A-I, the, mm. Thai, the Thai restaurant. Yes. They have a um, $34 lunch and $45 dinner, which are both quite affordable for 
outstanding Thai food, but I don't remember seeing them on the list. Um, certainly not this location in the past. Uh, the Pie Uptown. I actually did that one last summer. Mm. Yes. I'm just out of the loop so- then. <laughs> but I'm so glad that it was on your shortlist, Andre, because when I saw it, I was like, pie is definitely would have would have been one of my top recommendations. And maybe on a more positive note of checking out Summerlicious, this is a really great time for you to check out a restaurant that you've been meaning to for a pretty good deal most of yes. the time. Yes. So I think like like that's a really great way as for me who's a foodie and you know, like I am conscientious of my spending despite wanting to eat all the things in Toronto. And that's why I love Summer Delicious and Winter Delicious so much because it gives me an opportunity to taste and save a few bucks. And a lot of those restaurants have ended up as, as part of my regular rotation. Yes. Pie being one of them after visiting it last summer. All right. Do you have a restaurant you want to list or should I go with my second choice? Um, I wanted to give a shout out to La Bartola, which I think oh. is their first time on Summerlicious. I could have been, um, I could be out of the loop on this one, but I don't think I've seen La Bartola on the menu before. Um, I believe they are uh, a vegan restaurant. I shouldn't say I believe. I know they are a vegan restaurant, but you wouldn't know it. And this is one of those I like wish I didn't just give it away because now everyone's going to have all these preconceptions of La Bartola. Ignore the fact that I said it was a vegan restaurant. It's a Mexican restaurant. And I dream of their mole. Like to this day, after oh. having it last summer, I still dream of their mole. And I want to go back so bad. They made it um on the Michelin Guide. It was one of the recommended restaurants. And when oh, right I, did, I basically haven't been able to get a seat for the last few months. So I've been sort of waiting for the hubbub to die back down. And as a result, I've been just craving their mole. <laughs> and when I saw it on the list, I believe their dinner is $55. Um, so good. So good. So good. So good. I, it's on Collins Street downtown. I think, I think, I mean, you can hear my enthusiasm. You, you, everyone yes. should just go and check out La Bartola. So delicious. What's the pricing on the menu? So they're only doing dinner and it's a $55 dinner. $55 isn't bad for a restaurant mentioned in the Michelin Guide because um, the restaurant I earmarked is, I mean, a little expensive. But I mean, this is one of those things where you got to you gotta factor in um, dollar for value, right? Like, is it worth the money? Yeah, because you'd spend a lot more if it wasn't Summerlicious. And mine is um, Rain Restaurant and Bar at the Fairmont Royal York, which is 75 bucks a head. Um I wanted you to tell me about that one because I actually didn't know that it was located inside the Fairmount. I want I was like, I want to know what Andre's like $75 dinner place is because I'm willing to shell out $75 for a really great dinner. And if you think about it, a lot of Andre, if you buy like an appetizer for 20-ish bucks and Andre for 40-ish bucks, that's already 60 bucks right there. I know. And the other thing too is when you go to Rain, you're probably going to spend a few more bucks because um, I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm friends with the sommelier there. And uh, he has a very interesting wine list. And since he's taken over the helm about a year ago, he's worked really hard to uh, add more interesting Canadian wines, interesting Ontario wines to the list. And I really think that Steve Karos needs to be celebrated for the work that he's trying to do to make sure that the Fairmont Royal York is a flagship for Canadian wine. Oh, I love that. I actually love that so much. And honestly, I remember when I did Winterlicious this past this past winter, the money I saved uh, from ordering that set menu, I did spend on more drinks. It allowed me to kind of justify. <laughs> it's strategic. It's strategic, one. right? Like, yeah, like me, that's how you and I operate. Okay. All right, yeah, all right, yeah. all right. Save a few bucks here, split it there. All right, we got about thirty seconds left here. Let's get one more recommendation from you, Maroki, because like I know that people in the car are dying to find out where to eat for summer licious. 
Okay, so this one is actually one that you might not think I would normally recommend, but just given the kind verse, like the diversity that we have in Toronto, um, the one I always thought we didn't do the best at was barbecue, but mm. um, the Carbon Bar on mm. Queen Street East. It was on my list really too. Good barbecue. Oh, it does really good barbecue. And like genuinely having had barbecue in Texas and all over, these guys are very, very close. To the standard and they just have such you know you know how we always talk about like shrinkflation and all these small portions yeah the carbon bar is not gonna do that you're gonna leave so full all right all right all right and um shamelessly because like i do do a little bit of work for toronto life and toronto life is in the building i know from experience the cocktail list at carbon bar is outstanding so save oh, a few bucks so on your meal Hit yourself up with like they have one of the best bourbon selections I've ever seen outside yes, of Kentucky. Yes, the bourbon cart. The bourbon cart. The bourbon cart. So there you go, guys. You have a few of our short lists for summer delicious, but of course, it's not everything that is out there. I would eat at so many more places. Go check out their website. You know what? I hate to say it, but if you Google Summer Licious, you'll find it on the City of Toronto website. They have all the restaurants listed and plenty of stuff to check out. But when we come back from the break. Um, if you're on Reddit, you may be familiar with the acronym AITA, and we are going to ask whether or not one local restaurant in Toronto is TA about noise TA. when it comes to their, their patio. So don't go away, folks. We'll be back right after the break on 640 Toronto. This is Tasting Together. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome back. Uh, it's, I guess, a time of the show where we might get a little bit more serious, but that shouldn't be unexpected this time. I'm joined by my co-host, Maroki Tong. Yo. So you've got a bit of a story to share with me, and I, I think we're at the point where this endless patience we were demanding of people when we had, um, you know, open TO and patios on the streets and... You know, the city was all just like, we're going to get through this together. It's all finished, right? I, <laughs> I, I think the drama around the restaurant industry never finishes, which probably keeps you and I in business, Andre. Oh, 100%. Because we can comment it on it all the time. And this was just one that came across my radar recently. And it, it just really got me thinking about just the relationship that we as citizens of Toronto or as patrons of restaurants, but also as residents in Toronto have and like have with restaurants, like the relationship and sort of the um, I don't know, the interconnectivity and the 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 dynamics that we have with each other. So um, you know, one of the restaurants in my neighborhood of Eve Immigrant Kitchen, I love them very much. Yes, friends of the program. During the pandemic three years ago, they went and built out a back patio behind the restaurant so you know those of you in toronto you see a lot of restaurants they don't really have a lot of patio space in the front and there's a reason why cafe to became a thing because then they would close off areas of the sidewalk and the street to allow people who normally don't have the real estate to build patio build a patio up front but until that point they actually built a patio out back so that people could dine in you know like a, an open air socially distanced manner and it was a beautiful lovely covered patio that they souped up and kept building up over the years and this spring they received a noise complaint that ended up um having them to close their patio and right now they are coming up with a strategic strategic plan to kind of meet the needs of their customers and their neighbors because it does kind of back into a residential oh. neighborhood 
And so they are going into a hearing and they've been asking their patrons to sign a petition of which the vast majority have stepped up and said, absolutely, yes, we will support you. And it just kind of got me thinking, you know, like I support them wholeheartedly. So I'm just going to outright say like, I know their patio and I know that they close at a reasonable hour. They're not a loud restaurant. Like they're not a club by any stretch of the imagination. But it did get me thinking about the days when I used to work down on King West um, when the clubs are just like thumping way past 11 p.m., like yeah. five to midnight in the morning. And I just had this moment where I'm thinking, wow, like what a life it must be to know that if you're about to live in a certain area of Toronto, that you likely will be experiencing noise into the wee hours of the morning. And that kind of sucks. Or is it just something that like, you know what, you've made your bed. If you want to live on King and Bathurst, that's just the life you're going to have to deal with on the weekends. You know, um, I actually, you told me like the, the Coles notes version of this story before we hit record, but now that I've heard like some more details and you did, you'd actually did a really good, great job articulating that, you know, one complaint and a restaurant is forced to shut down a revenue stream for them. I mean, I'm sorry. It's one of the things that makes me ashamed to be a Torontonian is just how strong the NIMBY culture is in this city, you know? And frankly, I thought we lived in Olivia Chow's Toronto now. I thought we lived in a city that's progressive. I thought we lived in a city where, you know, we're supposed to be looking to the future. We're supposed to be having, you know, George Jetson floating by in flying cars. But like, I'm sorry, one person had a hard time sleeping. And I've been to Aviv Immigrant Kitchen. You painted the picture of King Street West. Uh, you know, when I moved to Toronto in 2007, the club district at Richmond and John was another place where you could get noise until all hours of the morning, which is now loaded with condos. Um, I'm sorry, you live in a metropolitan city. Sometimes you might have to deal with a little bit of noise, but Aviv is the farthest thing from, you know, a pump and club for you to have to worry about. So, you know, it really hurts my heart and my head to know that the city has the power to force a restaurant to shut down a revenue stream because one person complains but also the amount of time and effort that robert is going to have to go through that the owners of aviva are going to have to go through to fight this on top of having to run their restaurant it just seems profoundly unfair you know it does. And I'm not trying to, you know, I try and always approach things, even if I am friends with a restaurant or friends with the owners, to be as unbiased as possible and see both sides of the story. Um, and for me, you know, I live within this neighborhood and I think about living in this, in this neighborhood, you regularly hear really loud car traffic. There is cars honking at all hours of the night into the morning. And we, and the thing is, we don't, we, we can't point fingers at those people, right? We can't look out the window and be like, oh yes, I'm going to call by law on those cars. And I think sometimes we feel a lot of frustrations in living in a city that may yes. sort of in like sort of infringe on our peace. And then we sort of look for a scapegoat to, um, to put all that frustration and energy into and a restaurant is easy for them. That's why I said, that's why I'm also like always questioning like our relationship as customers with a restaurant because we frequent them and we enjoy them and we go to them. But then the moment we leave, then we find fault with all the things that they do to keep their doors open that we might not agree with the moment we leave. And I don't know if that's necessarily a fair thing. It's that whole thing of, oh, we really love patios, but then I'm annoyed that they took up my sidewalk. You know what? Let me let me take this a little bit to the side a little bit. This is something where it's served me well as a neighbor and just as a person 
in general over the the next little while is when did we get to a point where we can't talk to our neighbors and we call the cops on them instead um i generally believe that most people aren't a-holes on purpose you know i i think there's certain people where you know you go about your business you turn the music up a little bit you know, I lived above a, a restaurant that was under construction and they were in a time crunch to get open by a certain date. They have their contractors in literally until 5 a.m. most days. And there was a couple of nights where at 3 a.m. in the morning, they were pumping the music and I could hear it through the floor. Maroki, do you think I called the cops? Uh, you're not the type. You're, no. you're you're more confrontational than that, Andre. <laughs> well, I went downstairs. I knocked on the door of the restaurant and I said, hey, like my wife's upstairs. She works weird like off hours do you mind just turning the music down a bit and the person on the other side of the door was very apologetic and was just like i didn't realize the music was that loud there's most people mm -hmm. who just don't realize that it's a little bit too loud or the noise is a bit too much and i think there needs to be a bit of give and take to make a city work and i think the people who uh complained on aviv needs to get a bit of empathy yeah, I agree. And that's like, I think it's just a mixture of that, you know, Aviva has been around for a while, li living in a neighborhood like that. There's restaurants all around that neighborhood. They've been around for a while. And there's even a good chance that they would have frequented the restaurant or know people who frequent the restaurant. I just don't think it's that hard to have a conversation, especially with a bit with like a business that in their entire the entire business's mi mission is to serve and make you have a good time and treat you with good hospitality. It's like, <laughs> I would think if anything else, like we as customers have have been long given the gift, the entitlement to ask what we want from service and to kind of go and have a conversation with them to tell them about your needs and concerns should be the least thing that anyone would feel afraid to do. All right. I know we're coming to the end of this segment, but I would love to hear what you think in the car about this. Uh, should Aviv have been more mindful of the noise or... Um, did the neighbor do the right thing by calling the cops? Please give us a call, 416-966-7280. 416-966-7280. Maroki and I would love to hear what you think about this particular topic. And if you have other experiences of your own, either living in the city or maybe you own a small business that has gone through something like this, we'd love to hear it too because this is one example. Um, Andre didn't get a chance to talk about it, but he's experienced a couple examples <laughs> of his own in Toronto and outside of Toronto. And, you know, I think our experiences sort of guide the decisions that we end up making. All right. Now, coming up after the break, Maroki, I know we use our platform on this show to generally give you an opportunity to fangirl out over our favorite celebrities on the Food Network. I am shamelessly reaching out to one of my favorite singers from the late 90s. If you owned the Big Shiny Tunes records, you will probably know who I'm talking about. But uh, she is a Métis singer and has opened up a coffee shop in Toronto. I'm all about that. I'm, I'm, I'm all about that, the kind of intersections between um, one industry to another. So, Andre, I'm ready to hear about it all after the break on 640 Toronto. You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome back. Welcome back. Uh, I am Andre Prude, joined, as always, by Maroki Tong. And an interesting press release came across my uh, inbox a little bit earlier this week. Uh, it's a new report that shows the that Ontario's award-winning wine industry can uncork Ontario's 
economic potential. Um, it looks like it was a joint report put together by Ontario Craft Wineries, Wine Growers of Ontario, and Tourism Partnership Niagara. That's all a mouthful there. Um, but the report's just talking about the potential to unlock about $8 billion in additional real GDP. These are all nerdy things. Maroki, you and I are nerds, but not those kind of nerds, I don't think. When we say $8 billion, I'm sure there's not one person out there who's listening who doesn't just like their their eyes don't widen at that number and think about the impact that it could have for our economy. Yeah, but I mean, I wanted to break down when you see numbers like this, like what does $8 billion mean? Does it mean that $8 billion are going to go pay for our healthcare, pay for our roads? I know we've talked a little bit about government accountability, et cetera, et cetera. So we've tapped into someone who is a little bit closer to the story. And that is Paul Speck. He is the president of Henry Pelham, a member of the Ontario Craft Wineries, and I would say definitely heavily embedded in the industry as he also uh, runs Family Wine Merchants. Paul, is there any part of uh, wine and alcohol sales that you don't take part in with your brothers? <laughs> we're, we're everywhere. We're everywhere, but we're, we're really... Um most proud of uh, Henry of Pelham and, you know, growing grapes and making VQA wine. That's really uh, where our heart is. So I I guess we can dive right into some of the questions, Paul, and I think um, you'll most certainly answer a lot of them a lot better than we have in terms of our speculation. When we're talking about $8 billion here, like what does that look like? If you're an average consumer and you're hearing this news for the first time, you're like, okay, what does $8 billion in potential growth look like to the average consumer? So that's that's the heart of the question and it's the heart of what this whole Deloitte study is about. You know, when we started Henry of Pelham in the late 80s, you know, my brother started planting the vineyards when we were kids and then started the winery uh, in the late late part of the 80s. There's about eight wineries in uh, Niagara. Now there's about 200 and more and growing all over Ontario. And, uh, you know, at the time in St. Catharines and Niagara area, it was an industrial uh, area. So the, the main employers were General Motors, John Deere, um, and other small, mid, and large size manufacturing facilities. The wine industry is quite small. And um, what happened was is that those those um, industries have all but disappeared. And uh, the jobs have disappeared. The plants and manufacturing plants have all left town. And and uh, what picked up all those jobs was the a lot of the jobs was the wine industry. And we started... You know, and we grew this industry with with other people, you know, uh, Cave Spring, Enniskillen, some of the sort of uh, Shadow to Charm, some of the uh, pioneers of the, uh, the the industry. And it grew way past our wildest dreams. And, you know, uh, now there's, you know, all these wineries all over Ontario, billions of dollars were created, you know, it transformed what Niagara looked like. Uh, all those jobs went into the wine industry. Uh, restaurants were built. Hotels were built. Niagara Falls, which was a pretty modest tourism experience back then, they, they took off as well. And uh, we started to see 
uh, tremendous growth in in the whole area. And, and what we're saying, we're very proud of what we, we've uh, together accomplished. Now it's time to take a look at the next step. What what is what is phase two? Phase two is to uh, continue along that uh, lines. But in the past, we've been very siloed. In other words, the uh, wine guys would do their thing, the tourism people would do their thing, uh, the the um, the developers of housing and schools and hospitals, that would be all independent. And nobody was talking to each other with a cohesive plan. What we're, we've put together is a plan to get everybody together so that we can uh, collaborate and develop this uh, industry and this region using the wine industry as the spark plug because we know that that's the main driver. I think that is a very good explanation and I, I don't think I could agree more I mean the one of the great things about the wine industry is the value add right like you're creating a product that is on the shelves of and I know especially with Henry Pelham cross Canada it's a very strong brand that that you know is is available but you're also creating a destination i mean dairy farmers for the most part and grain farmers don't get that tourism benefit so your spark plug analogy is fantastic but one thing i know a lot of wineries and many winery owners like to complain about or at least raise concerns about are the different levels of bureaucracy like literally at every stage of production you're dealing with a set of red tape like whether it's trying to purchase a winery dealing with municipalities to get the brick and mortar set up, uh, you know, to negotiating great prices, to working with the LCBO, which I've been very critical of. Paul, I'm not going to let you make you say anything about the LCBO because I know they're fantastic partners of yours, but I think they could be doing a better job selling Ontario wine. Is your hope with this report that a call to action from the government is going to be to trim away some of this red tape so that we can see some growth? Because I I, I don't think a lot of people would disagree that the current legislative framework is certainly a barrier to hitting that $8 billion of potential growth. Yeah, 100%, Andre. That's that's exactly what we're looking at, at, at showing that using best practices around the world, and, and we're not reinventing the wheel here. This has been done in Kelowna. It's been done in Napa Valley. It's been done in Italy, France. If you look at their tourism industries, the spark plug is the wine industry and then everything starts to build out around it. And one of the things, there's a couple of things that have been holding us back. One is that we've been working in the silos like I've been talking about and that we need to develop one plan that we're all pushing in the same direction for. And and the other thing is if you specific, specifically about wine, we are buried in taxes. We're in and 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 bureaucracy at, at, at other levels, but taxes are the real issue. Uh, we have a hundred plus year old tax regime that is a prohibitionist idea, and it uh, it it taxes wine the same way that cigarettes are taxed, for example, and it's a sin tax. It was it's been called, and it has always been called that. And our foreign competitors around the world, Italy, France, they don't have a sin tax. They don't have a prohibitionary tax. 
wine is uh, considered an agricultural product in those countries, which it is. It, you know, you literally take grapes, ferment them, and put them in a bottle. It's taxed the same way tomato soup is. Uh, in Canada, though, uh, we're, we're, we're like an ATM for the government. And what we're seeing is those, if, if you look at the best practice around the world, that's not how you grow an industry and, and grow your community. Uh, those guys in, the, in Italy and France have, uh, have this, you know, they don't get taxed, so they come into Ontario and, and are very competitive. And we want to compete with them here in Ontario and around the world, but we need, you know, we need to reform this tax policy that's currently in place. And it's an Ontario tax policy, and we want to work with the government to look at that so that we can spark not just the wine industry, but development, hospitals, hotels, communities, you name it. It'll all get built uh, if, you use, uh, if you use this policy properly. And uh, we're, that's what this Deloitte report is all about. And, and what's gratifying about it is the wine industry, this is private sector led, and uh, we kind of got together and, and put this on the table and Deloitte reaffirmed what we were thinking and went around the world and looked at it and said, yeah, you guys, you guys got the right idea. Now we got to get everybody organized. Paul, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and sharing this report. And I think uh, hopefully just raising a little bit more awareness of how important the Ontario wine industry is. It's not just a place to go for a rowdy bachelorette on the weekend. It's a place of commerce that spills out far and wide. And uh, Ontario is making great wines. We should be supporting it, uh, especially if you head to the LCBO, grab a bottle of Henry Pelham Baco Noir this weekend. And uh, yeah, thanks again. Coming up after the break, we're going to continue talking about some more wine by digging into all things rosé, of which I'm pretty sure there's going to be some delicious Ontario wines in that. That's coming up on Tasting Together, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. I am not to talk about drinking seasonally on Tasting Together, but Andre Pru and I definitely do enjoy rosé all year, but especially during the summer season. And now we're joined by Danny Longo in the Global Newsroom. Danny, are you like a rosé in the summer kind of guy or are you a rosé all year kind of guy? I would say I'm more, I'm a, I am would do it all year, but definitely more so in the summer. You know, I think for myself, I make the effort to drink it year round, but I think there's just something about the feeling of the cooler weather where I naturally shift to heavier red wines in the winter. I've been finding this, something's going on in, in the air. I've been drinking a lot of heavier reds this summer. It might just be because the LCBO has got a bunch on discount right now on their website. <laughs> well, I also find that when the sun goes down, then you're like, oh, it's getting slightly cooler and I can drink the heavier red. So it's like you start the day with a big sweaty rosé and then at the end of the night, you kind of switch to a red. Right. I went straight to the source. The man who is without a doubt the authority on rosé in Ontario, Michael Pincus, the grape guy. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well, Andre. How are you? I'm doing very well. So yesterday you released your newest version of the Rosé Report. How many years have you been doing this now? This is the fifth. The fifth year. And how many rosés did you taste in the guide this year? Uh, I tasted over 400. And how many wines made it into the guide? 
311, I think. 302. Yeah, something just a little over 300. Okay, so you review a lot of wines. You're probably the most prolific, if not the most, one of the most prolific wine writers in Ontario. You post content on your Instagram, at The Grape Guy. You post a lot of video content on YouTube. So why focus on Rosé? Well, the last name's Pincus, so it's kind of built right in uh, into the thing. So, uh, And I just like Rosé. I think it's a great summertime wine, and it's just it's something I really enjoy. And to be honest, the first time I ever did the Rosé report was not actually a report. It was just a page that I got about um, close to 100 reviews on Rosé, and I put it up as a page on my website. And then the following year, because the LCBO didn't have us in for tastings or anything like that, uh, and they still don't, uh, I had to figure out what to do during a pandemic. So I reached out to wineries from uh, from coast to coast, from BC and Ontario, and, and said, hey, uh, I'm going to put together a rosé report. Um, send me your wines. And because I guess everybody else was bored, they, they sent wine in too. So your rosé report contains a lot of wines that you can't necessarily get at the LCBO, but it does have a lot that you can, and obviously... Uh, big proponents on the show of supporting local the wineries direct. So a lot of the wines are available in the market. So a lot of the wines are w- available in the market. It, uh, in the report, it says whether they're available in the market. There's a lot of Ontario wines. A lot of BC wines will ship to Ontario. I have you know phoned a few of them and said, do you ship? And they're like, yeah, what the heck? <laughs> like It's not, you know, you have to get maybe six or 12. One of them told me they'd send you a bottle. You're just going to pay the shipping. Okay, so... You've tasted as many rosés as you have from different regions in the world. Um, I know this is a hard question to answer because we have a little bit of time left here. Are there any overarching trends in rosé that you think that consumers should be aware of? Uh, definitely rosé is going drier, which is which is lovely to see. Um, some regions are sticking with you know their relatively sweet roots, which places like the Loire, if you buy a bottle of Loire uh, rosé, it will be slightly sweeter than maybe uh, we are used to or people are used to when they drink from Provence. But then there's always, you know, there's, you know, that that helpfulness of the French. You know, somebody's doing sweet, somebody's doing dry. They've kind of, you know, coalesced in a way that, uh, you know, they, they catch everybody in that little basket from France. But I think the best thing I can tell you is that rosé is going dry. MichaelPinkusWineReview.com is where you can download the guide. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you, Andre. I, for one, am happy to hear that, in general, rosé is going dry. I think it's fascinating that um, that Michael mentioned that as a trend. I guess for me, rosé has always been dry, but maybe that's just because I'm proactively purchasing dry rosé, and I've never really noticed that the market generally lean towards sweet and and maybe just for clarification for our audiences too like when michael's saying that loire rosé is sweeter i still don't find it all that sweet like it's for me it's not the same as let's say picking up some pink some like white zinfandel out there that is just loaded with sugar i'm thinking probably still only between 12 to 15 grams if i'm surmising yeah i think that's that's pretty spot on like when you get to 12 to 15 grams per liter like that's still perceptible sweet like you'll be able to taste the taste the sugar on your palate but you know by comparison like 15 grams per liter of sugar is i think a tablespoon of sugar in the whole bottle so like it's not it's exactly like you said it's not cloying it's not drinking candy and i still think in the wine terms it's considered dry is it not 
Uh, when you're getting north of like eight grams per liter, it's uh, you're you're looking at at being considered off dry. Okay, interesting. Uh, Danny, I can't remember. Do you, you actually? I remember in a previous conversation when we were talking about residual sugars and stuff. You like your wine sometimes a little bit sweeter, right? Like, what kind of rosé do you normally go for? Yeah, I definitely do prefer it a little bit sweeter. I, I don't like it like super sweet. I don't, I don't want too much sugar. So. I'm not consciously um, looking at the sugar count, which I probably should be, but I like something kind of right in the middle. Not overly sweet, but definitely not too dry either. I think one of the things that, you know, when we talk about rosé, I, I, I definitely think that the average consumer just sees rosé as this pink wine, but they ne not necessarily think about, like, that there could be 400 plus of them on the market and that they all are very different. That was like the first thought that crossed my mind when Michael was saying, I'm putting 300 rosés in the rosé reports. Most people are going to be like, wait, there's like 300 different rosés out there and they actually could all be different because yes, like rosé is so versatile in some ways. So this is maybe the Coles notes for rosés for people out there. You get a little rosé seminar from Maroki here is that Rosé traditionally in um, the old world, like in Europe, it's made from red, like red wine grapes. But what they're doing is they're taking the free run juice before the skins remain on for an even longer period of time to make uh, to make red wine. It's just like it's just been touched, been kissed by the skins. It leaves that color, it adds a bit of flavor, but it would be made from grapes like Pinot Noir or from Gamay. And then in the new world, and, and Andre, I think we've had some conversations about this, so you can correct me if I'm wrong. But my knowledge is, is that in the new world, like um, they're make you know, like and only in the new world, because I think you can't do this in Europe. They're beginning to do some other things where they're not only maybe blending different single red varieties together, but they're sometimes even adding a bit of white wine to it as well. What uh, you just described was all completely correct. Uh, the vast majority of rosé, especially when you're talking about good rosé, is made with red grapes and you just give the, the, the wine a little bit of color from the skins. But... Um, notably, if you go to the general list at the LCBO and take a look at some of the house wine company made by the fine people at Henry of Pelham, they actually put it in black and white on their front labels saying that the wines are, are red and white wine mixed together. Most rosé is not red and white wine mixed together, but there are creative ways you can get that pink hue and still make something delicious. Yes, and I, I would like to say that, like, it's, I know in, I know in sort of like wine snob land, uh, people tenor, generally kind of look down upon blending the red and white grapes because they think it's like a way to cheap out on making a quality wine versus really focusing on building something complex with just a single grape. However, I think if you're doing it in, in, a, in an innovative and a, in a concise way, what you're doing is you're adding a profile that's coming from, let's say, Chardonnay, which has a pretty distinct grape uh, flavor profile, or even Riesling, into a flavor profile that's coming from a red grape to create something new and different in terms of flavors. Good wine is good wine. I mean, I think transparency of how it's made is important, but uh, it's kind of cool to see wine styles evolving. No, I think it's super interesting. I mean, it's kind of like food, you know, like sometimes you may have two wines that you don't think should be mixed and you mix them and, you know, you, you end up with something wonderful. So, yeah, transparency. I agree with Andre completely that transparency is definitely important. Yeah, I don't think people want to be fooled into uh, drinking, you know, what they think is a Pinot Noir uh, rosé into, uh, you know, a, a mix of a Riesling and I don't know. A, <laughs> and Baco Noir. Noir. Yeah, sure. But uh, I, I, but like what you said, good wine is good wine. And if it's good and it tastes good, that's all that matters. 
Well, I don't know about the two of you guys, but I'm going to spend a bit of time with Michael's Rosé report because as much as I love Rosé and I love talking about it, I think I would be tired of it after tasting 400 over the course of a couple months. That is that is a lot of Rosé. Very intense. It is a lot, Very intense. lot of Rosé. And, 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 you know, and within his report, I believe he has sparkling Rosé in there as well, which opens up a whole new denomination because <laughs> now you have like champagne. Now you have Prosecco Rosé. And uh, but the, it just really goes to show the versatility of Rosé and what a perfect and you know what? Like I said, we don't drink seasonally, but what a perfect time to introduce Rosé into your lives if you haven't been sipping it before. You know, after the weather this week, I think this is as good a place as any to say... At the end of this show, keep listening to 640 and head to your nearest LCBO or bottle shop and grab a delicious bottle of rosé. Done.